City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. City Limits, it's the first Wednesday of the month. That means it's transport today. And we've got John McPherson on the line with us. We've got Meg Kimber on the line with us. I'm Kevin Healy. We've got Karina pressing buttons. And um, on today's program, we're going to shortly, I think, if you can get through, have a very brief chat to Ken Mooney, a long-time listener and supporter of 3CR, because Ken's wife died a few weeks ago. And uh, because of corona, of course, there was no funeral and uh, people can't visit him. And it's a pretty awful time for him in many ways. They've been together for about 50 years or so. And um, he's going to ring in to thank 3CR for, uh, he says, a lovely card and thoughts they sent to him. So uh, he may come on and do that. John, you and I, of course, visited, uh, had lunch with them when they showed us around freeway sites then planned yeah, I remember it well, yeah. for the western suburbs of Melbourne some years ago. Uh, it was a great day. Mm. Yeah, and took us to all the places where it's going to be affected by the government's then plan, which was ultimately dropped. Also today, Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth is coming on the program. He's their uh, climate change person, but he's been active in getting the Victorian government to to use renewable energy on trams, on trams and trains, and it's now happening. So he's going to come on, and that's a good news story for City Limits, which is pretty good. And John McPherson, of course, will talk to us about lots of transport issues, and we've got a fair few today, John, lined up. Ah, yes, quite a few. So there, <laughs> never a shortage. What a day on City Limits. Oh, yeah. what a day this has been. What a rare mood I'm in. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's do that instead, Kevin. What about a musical show? Yeah. A sing-along. <laughs> you can lead the music. <laughs> Hang on, okay. Well, look, here's the sound for you. Ah, the pouring of the tea. John must miss that every month. Now it's awful when we can't get together. All I've got is a bit of coffee in the bottom of a mug. <laughs> Dreadful, a social disaster. 
I thought that was a, a, <laughs> a classic. That's so silly. Yeah, classic piece. Of, you know how their minds work, Kevin. They're, you know, the right people getting money if, they were get, if it was going to going to industrialists, whereas the ABC are just leeches, leeches on society. Absolutely. They don't do anything useful. You know, they should be taken over by the Murdoch media immediately. You know, the ABC yes. should be part of the yeah. ABC. Well, he tried to take over the, the Radio Australia thing a few years ago, of course. The, but the, also, the good people, the public sector workers on the front line of the pandemic who have had their wages frozen. I wonder how much say they had in having their wages frozen, of course. I would think none. Yeah. But also, the same paper, the same paper a couple of days earlier, you might recall we commented at the time when it, any you know it was dreadful stuff that dreadful branch stacking in the ALP and the main culprit behind it was a bloke called Adam Somurek who immediately resigned from both the ministry and the and the Labor Party and he was on the outer and the Herald Sun painted him as an absolute villain only a few months ago you might I think we all recall that well last week he wrote a feature article in the Herald Sun attacking the the state government for the way it's handled the pandemic and its general role in, in terrible things it's doing in the community. And suddenly now he's a hero of the Herald Sun. <laughs> the letters column came out with um, things like, uh, well done, Adam, for once someone is prepared to stand up and tell the truth. A whole series of letters saying what a wonderful bloke Adam is for exposing <laughs> this dreadful, dreadful Labor government in Victoria. So isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Which he was part of up to a few weeks ago. <laughs> That's right. And he was the villain of only, only a few weeks ago, but now he's the good. Yeah, yeah. Quickly, yeah. the tides will turn. Yeah, that's right. The worms will turn. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, we haven't mentioned, but should we mention the fact that, of course, the US president is is laid up? But I think we just ignore that. Yeah. Can we have a please? Can we have a Trump-free day? <laughs> well, I yeah. That's that's a, all right. My one comment is, I got home from shopping on Saturday morning <laughs> when I do my shopping now. And a friend from Queensland, whom you know, John, um, I got home and had a message on my phone saying, I'm reassessing my belief system. There may be a God after all. Um, <laughs> I, I had no idea what she was talking about, of course. Um, oh, no. no, no. But on a, on a very, very ordinary note, I think more important than Donald Trump being ill, two-fifths of the world's plant species are at risk of extinction, according to a global assessment by the Royal Botanic Gardens Q. Scientists said species which could be valuable sources of medicine and food were disappearing before they could be identified, caused mainly by agriculture, unsustainable harvesting, dams and other infrastructure. The State of the World's Plants and Fungi 2020 report by 210 scientists from 42 countries estimated 140 thousand species or 39.4 percent of plants were threatened with extinction up from 21 percent in 20 in the 2016 review so that's pretty ordinary news on that front very sad news yeah but we get that sort of news every week now unfortunately about something so but they never seem to learn yeah when we talked to Helen Vandenberg about the, the creek pollution and, and uh, how it was a thriving environment for um, frogs and other animals and then after the fire there was no life there, a good uh, local example, not a good example, but a pertinent local example of how the impact of humans uh, on the ecosystem is yeah. very disturbing where I feel like we're doing something very wrong to uh, have that effect on our environment so close to home in particular because we have to live here too. <laughs> yeah. 
That's right. Yeah, and it, it does look like the whole rate of extinction of things, plants and things, is going getting faster and faster. Mm. It's really concerning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the extinctions were happening, say, 50 years ago, but the rate at which they seem to be detected now is just so much greater. Mm. Yeah. And it's not as if there are more scientists out there. There aren't. The, the, all the scientific agencies have been denuded, mm. usually right, right-wing governments, because they don't like the answers they come up with. Um, are you saying scientists are, are an endangered species as well now, John? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> scientists are on the way out too. <laughs> well, if you get rid of them, you won't know about the other extinction, so it's not a bad idea, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for pointing yeah. that out. That's yes. all right, John. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. the reason. Yeah, yeah. 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 Now, we've been following, of course, the uh, with the mentioned Helen Vandenberg, Clean Away, which is the company that refuses to clean up the telemarine toxic waste stuff. But we point, we've pointed out in recent weeks there's been all sorts of problems about the culture in the company itself, bullying in the company itself, or the fact that they uh, were saving money by not necessarily maintaining their fleet of trucks as best they could. Uh, it goes on and on. They're being investigated by the EPA in New South Wales. They're being investigated by WorkCare because of the, the bullying in the company. And now we find there's leaked documents that show this week that they deliberately had a program during COVID to force workers to take their leave and in fact go into negative leave. So in fact, they took more than, but then they got to a certain point where they wouldn't be paid. And they also have in Queensland, they've they've slashed contractors' rates for truck drivers because they have some directly employed uh, truck drivers and some owner drivers who work as contractors virtually, but they're really just workers. And they've slashed their rate by 7.32% from the start of July, and they're now claiming from those drivers the difference from July till now of the 7.32%. So they're actually asking drivers whom they've paid to pay back money to them. It's extraordinary. Wow. Absolutely extraordinary. And, of course, we mentioned last week they also had faulty scales on their trucks but didn't tell the customers they were being ripped off. Uh, so the, the story at Clean Away just goes on and on. And, uh, it really does. Yeah, there you are. We'll keep watching that. They've obviously, uh, for whatever reason, I'm getting all this, uh, this information out of the Financial Review. It's running stories almost by the day, so for some reason, it's got it in for them. <laughs> so so we're, we're, we're getting all this information, <laughs> which, is, which is good. Another um, item I think this week I found of interest was that, that Mike Pompeo, that wonderful US Secretary of State, went to the Vatican and he told the Pope he should resist engaging with the horrifying Chinese government because it crushes religious freedoms. And he, uh, he turned up and told him all that he said that Catholic shrines were being destroyed in China and images of Jesus were being replaced by those of Mao. Nowhere is religious freedom under assault as it is in China today. Don't they carry on, these Americans? Bikuri Pompeo. Wow. But the awful thing is that Illa Papa, Illa Papa refused to meet him. Oh. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Oh, good on him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's awful, isn't it? <laughs> I'll tell you why I refused to meet him, because he had so much to do with George Pell that he was over bullies of every kind. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> 
George had come back. <laughs> um, and he also advised the Italian government, by the way, to, to cut its commercial ties with Beijing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... It seems not that mm. there's you know, anything, not that China was an enemy or anything, John, but just that they happen to uh, do all that sort of stuff. Well, well, not that not that America doesn't have huge, huge trade ties with, with China that they couldn't possibly get out of. Nearly every product on the Walmart shelves in the USA, of course, comes from China. <laughs> yes, but that's different, of course. That, cause they, <laughs> they, they can't spy on Walmart shelves, can they? <laughs> Would you want to? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. But um, before we go on, I'm going to transport very shortly, but Narrabri last week, sad news, Meg, because we've talked about this before, but the, the mm. tribunal in New South Wales approved the Narrabri mine, which is a disaster and... Uh, the the, the mm. indigenous community, the local yeah, the local indigenous mob, and of course local farmers and local communities. There were thousands in that case opposing it, but it still got approved, and it's it's quite uh, mm. quite troublesome, unfortunately. No, really concerning. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is, and and subsequent to that, because it it will you know if it goes ahead, it will provide more gas for the eastern coast or the. Yes, Eastern Coast and Victoria, but nonetheless, AGL says it doesn't change the fact that it wants to proceed with its Crib Point floating gas import plant. So that all goes mm. on. Yeah. yeah, let's take a quick break. We'll have a break, come back, and start talking to John about transport. Okay. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the, the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua.
Okay, back on City Limits, and in that break, uh, Ken Mooney's also joined us. So, Ken, you, you've rung up because you did want to thank 3CR for sending a note. I mentioned earlier that, uh, Joe, your wife had died a few weeks ago, and um, you got a, apparently a, a card of some sort or tribute from 3CR. So just can you just tell us what you came on to say? Well, that's what you've said it for me. That, that, I, I think okay, that's it. Absolutely yeah. wonderful of 3CR of sending me the card, and I, 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 I really feel honoured, and I've lost the love of my life. We were together for 52 years, and it's very mm. hard, very, very hard. Yep, and uh, and of course, because of corona, nothing's happened so far, but there will be a memorial service at the oh, yes. uh, Unitarian that's, Church at some stage. Yeah, that's that's right, and I'll last, once this is all over, I'll have a, We'll have a celebration of her life at the Unitarian Church, I hope. I've got to speak to, to Peter Aberhart, and I'm sure I'll get it. So that's what I'll do in a, in a couple of months' time, maybe yeah. three. All right, uh, Ken. Well, look, thanks for coming on today, and um, I'm sure everyone's speaking of you. And uh, once we can all get together, we can all get together. That's one of the problems at the moment. We just can't get it together. It certainly is. It's very lonely. Okay. Thanks yeah. very much. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Bye. Thanks, Ken. Very good. All right, well, that was, uh, yeah, Ken and, uh, and well, good old 3CR for helping, because he's been a great supporter mm-hmm. of 3CR over the years. But uh, in this time, I know there's no good time to die, but when you die at a time when no one can even come near you or you can't go with them and these kids are all interstate and they can't get into Victoria, mm-hmm. it's a very difficult period. It's a really hard time. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. John, transport, we said before the break we'd go on to transport. I don't know if you've noticed it, but Infrastructure Victoria has put up mm-hmm. a proposal for changing the whole fare structure. They say that fares outside of peak hour could drop to as low as $1.25. The free tram zone be scrapped, etc. But I'll just read some of the key points they say. Under the proposed model, those who commute into the city by train at peak hour could be charged between four and five dollars a journey, while express buses and tram journeys could sit at two fifty. Off-peak bus trips would be half price, while bus routes that stop at every station could remain at one twenty-five at all times. That's a dollar twenty-five. It estimates these changes would mean seventy-one percent of Melburnians pay less for travel than they do now, and ninety-six thousand car trips would be taken off the city's roads. I don't know how they reach those sort of figures, but anyway, but the number of public transport passengers on a typical weekday could rise by 56,000 insuring revenue. Cheaper prices for underused services such as buses and all off-peak travel gives public transport users power to decide how much they want to pay for public transport based on when and how they travel. Michael Masson, who's the Infrastructure Victoria Chief Executive, said it is expected the proposal proposed fare system could add more than 100,000 trips outside of peak hours with a new city zone for CBD journeys and pricing based on direction of travel among other changes considered and he says um, includes the screw scrap the card purchase fee for for Mikey or scrap Mikey altogether in fact in some cases and develop new technology a lot of his ideas keep coming up but what about those ideas John well, that's a whole that's a whole bunch of ideas, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a package, isn't it? Yeah. I like the idea of getting rid of the free city zone. That's always been a bit stupid because people who have travelled into the city by public transport have already paid for their travel around the city. Mm. The only people who really gain from the, the free zone in the city are people who parked their car 
near the edge of the city and then get a free ride into the centre. And, and that means that they then uh, make the, the city centre trams and things even more crowded. So that's a good idea. And tourists benefit from the free trams. Tourists, tourists benefit, but yeah. they, can, they can be catered for with a, you know, some sort of a special daily fare, I think. Mm. And they won't mind paying a bit extra as long as they feel that they're um, able to um, go, with it, go where and when they want to. Um, and not and not find themselves tangled up in some um, problem with with zones and things like that, which often happens. You know, mm. people get confused about how far they can travel. So I think they can be looked after. But I, yeah, look, I, I quite like a lot of those ideas. The idea of charging more to travel on pick out trains and things like that is not a bad one. But of course, if you go to if you go to encourage people to travel off peak, you've got to make sure the services that are available are also running frequently. One of the problems with Melbourne is that often the peak services will be reasonably frequent. But as soon as, as, soon as the authorities think the peak hour is over, the services drop back to a mm. poor frequency. So that sort of thing's got to be improved. Um, following on from that, I think it's a bit problematic to make monetary sort of solutions to the problems of basically um, scheduling and infrastructure because then you have like if you're poor and you have to get into the city for work, uh, and you like can it's half the price to catch a tram, but a tram takes yep. you know sometimes more than an hour when it when the train takes twenty minutes. Then you basically yep. have like a one system of transport for rich or more well off yep. that they can take a fast train, and then everyone else is stuck in traffic on a tram or a bus. It's a bit concerning, I think. Yeah, well, that well, that's certainly that's the way the system works somewhere like London. The, mm. um, Travelling by tube costs quite a lot more than travelling by bus. Mm. But, of course, the, um, the buses get caught, as you say, in, in the peak hour traffic and take yeah. a lot longer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I guess this guy would be saying, if I just finished, Kevin, that, yeah. that um, we use the same sort of tolling system, you know, on the roads, toll roads. Yeah. And we don't, give a, we don't let the poorer people pay, pay a cheaper toll. Mm. You know, there, that would where, be where he's coming from. He would argue that anybody who uses the expensive system should be paying the toll. But I think Meg's point's quite valid. Why should people on a quarter of the income pay mm. the same amount to use public transport as the, um, the rich people? But, mm. but in Melbourne, probably most of the rich people who, who work in the centre of the city still drive and park in the basement of, the, basement of their high-rise buildings, mm. to be frank. <laughs> But we don't really know. I don't think there's any information to show that sort of thing. You know, we don't know enough about the people who use the system anyhow. Yeah, I was going to say that the, the only problem with the extra paying extra in, in peak hour is that not all workers in peak hour are highly paid workers and it would depend a fair bit on, mm. yeah, the employers being flexible. Would... Well, I think we've really, we've already acknowledged that. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of... Yeah. Ill, badly paid cleaners, for instance, who need to be in the city at the same time as the um, as the office workers in uh, the high rise towers, and we of course we haven't mentioned what's going to happen after COVID. You know that that might blow the whole the whole travel patterns of the city. You know, yeah. wide open. Well, there's assumptions in this report that you know it's going to go back to normal. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Well, everybody, mm. everything everything we've got so far really says that. But we just don't know what it's going to be like after COVID. Well, lots of people keep working from home and well, lots of companies keep 
asking them to work from home because it's cheaper for the company. Mm. Yeah, it does look like there's a, you know, just anecdotally speaking with Mm. people and looking at things. I think The Guardian had an article about building high-rise office towers in London and that people are looking at that, you know, developers are looking at that as a not very uh, wise um, investment at this point because most companies are saying, yeah, if you want to keep working from home, we can accommodate that. Well, see, we're here in Melbourne, we're building huge road projects mm. and rail, rail projects on the assumption that we're going to need all this extra capacity, both road and rail. Mm. And what we're actually seeing is people need to get around their local area. Yeah. And that yeah. may continue even when, it still could be a while before people are back in offices. I think people are talking like beginning of next year at the earliest. So people really need to be able to get around their local area. Without having, without having to drive. On a bike, Megan. I love bikes, yeah. Yeah, well, it looks like, you know, bikes for local transport look, you know, really, really sensible. Mm. And um, why should, you know, and, and we shouldn't be building huge roads we're not going to need because that, what huge roads do, as we all know, is just encourage more people to drive more by car. Mm. But ironically, bike shops are currently all closed under the lockdown, which is interesting. <laughs> And you do need provisions for people who have different levels of ability and, and mobility and are older. Yeah. So, yeah. Which means a decent bike path network that protects people from the, from the traffic. And, yeah, and options for people who can't, who can't ride. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, as I keep saying, our bus network in Melbourne, I think, is fairly shambolic. It's, um, it varies yeah. from almost usable to appalling. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be any any um, level of, of provision that has to be provided right across the city. So you, depending where you live, you can be lucky or you can be really unlucky. Mm. Um, and that seems to have nothing to do with how poor or rich the area is because, in fact, the well-off eastern suburbs seem to have better public transport than the poorer western suburbs, and yet you would expect that more people in the western suburbs want to use public transport because it's cheaper than um, running another car. And, of course, the proposal to to get much cheaper fares on buses uh, really hinges on the fact that they come along fairly frequently rather than the once an hour in many services now. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but you could argue that if the fares are really low, then they don't have to provide a really good service because, you know, how can you expect a good service if you're not paying much for it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was always an argument of Paul Mees. Paul Mees always made that argument that if you um, drop the um, drop the cost of public transport too much, you're actually then inviting the people who provide it to provide an even worse service because because they can argue, well, nobody's paying paying much to use it. So that's that's something that I'd be wary about with these proposals from Infrastructure Victoria too, that uh, you might end up with poorer levels of service rather than better ones. Yeah. I suppose when they do sign the contracts with these private companies, they could actually put something in the contract that says you've actually got to run a much better service. <laughs> oh, well, I could. <laughs> I mean, it's an idea, but like... <laughs> Just thought I'd throw it into the equation. I think I think these days actually the government pretty much specifies the service they're going to run anyhow. Wow. They they've gone through the period of trying to get the operators to be uh, entrepreneurial and provide better services, and I don't think it worked 
very well. So they've gone back to, oh, well, we'll just go on doing what we've always done, you know. And that's another thing. The services in Melbourne are so historically based, you know, that you get a service that, that's been running for roughly 50 years in your area, you know. You don't, it's hardly ever improved. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a really shambolic shambolic way particularly the the way the bus services are run yeah yeah we've got probably about five minutes before our guest lee eubank from friends of the earth joins us and anyone who's just tuned in you're listening to city limits and this is our transport show kevin did you have anything pressing you wanted to grill john about before lee comes on john i mentioned to you on the phone yesterday at the moment the upfield line terminates at anstey station which is the one past brunswick and then it's a bus service along sydney road for the rest of it uh, but uh, uh, my problem the problem is obviously communication which is always a problem with government because i saturday mornings if i don't go to vic market i go to uh, brunswick market which is near anstey station so then i wander up and get the train home rather than ride my bike and uh, there's never never went on on the bloody thing, but but the trains change between the two stations, Brunswick and Anstey. So, as one train goes out, virtually another one comes in, but it sits there for 20 minutes be, because it's getting back to the timetable, and it's you know it's got to wait no, 20. So you, yeah, it couldn't improve the timetable. No, no to no. go out at the normal, go back at the normal time. But I got on last week. I got on the train and sat in the carriage and the I got it to myself but there was a, a bloke down the other end of the carriage who looked like he was reading i just ignored him but he, he'd been on he'd come in on the train so i assumed he'd got off the he thought i'll go up and go back with it rather than wait on the platform but after about 10 minutes of sitting there he got up and wandered up and he turned out he, he was a, he was an old chinese bloke pushing a jeep and he his movement was very slow he was shuffling but he, he obviously thought it was going to keep going. No, he wasn't aware it was stopping there. And he was pointing to me to get off, sort of, and I tried to explain to him, no, it's going back to Melbourne. Uh, and there's a, I tried to explain there's a bus service up on Sydney Road. And I've got no idea whether he understood that or not. He eventually got off and I was last seen shuffling up the platform very slowly. So even getting to Sydney Road, which is a couple of hundred yards away, would have been a real difficulty for him. And it struck me, the real thing about that story is the communication of what's going on to someone who doesn't speak English. Mm-hmm. And it's outrageous that the bus didn't actually come to the station. Mm. I don't think it does, unless it does now, but I don't think it does, no. Well, that's, you know, that's just, even if it's difficult, if it's a train replacement bus, Mm. it should come into the station. Mm. And there should, of course, be some decent announcements on the train Mm. about what's happening. And possibly, dare I say it, some staff to ensure people Mm -hmm. change over. You can see no sign of any staff there, Kevin, supervising? No, a couple of times there's been cleaning staff who go through and do some sanitation uh, when it comes in. Uh-huh. But the, the, yeah. that day, the only start, sign of the staff was the driver changing ends. Right. So no, not even PSAs? In a, no, no one else on it. No, no. Right. Well, that's, that's you know, that's pathetic. I think that about the only word you can describe it. A bit like the Victorian response to COVID. Pathetic. Guys, we're going to have to take a break and we'll be back with uh, Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth on City Limits after this. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne.
Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager, or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Okay, back on city limits and Lee Eubank from the, the climate campaigner at uh, Friends of the Earth and Lee's joined us because, Lee, it's a good news story. In fact, for once, um, we don't have too many on public transport in Melbourne, but uh, the government has decided to make all public transport, all, all electrified public transport in Melbourne with renewable energy. Uh, can you tell us about the history of this and why it, how it got to this stage? Yeah, sure can. And it's great to be on city limits. So earlier in September, we had a really encouraging announcement from the Andrews government as part of their package to achieve the Victorian renewable energy target. They pledged to repower the Melbourne Metro trains um, and every school and every hospital in the state with solar and wind. And, you know, this is a long-standing campaign of Friends of the Earth's to repower the Melbourne train network with renewables, as it is one of the largest consumers of electricity in the state of Victoria. And given that we do have quite a sizable share of our electricity coming from polluting brown coal, you know, that, that was actually causing a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and making it even more difficult for us to tackle climate change. Mm. So how, how long will it take the, um, the government to convert the uh, system to renewable energy, Lee? Yes, so at the moment there is a market sounding for 600 megawatts of new renewable energy capacity, so that will be solar and wind. And um, the last time there was a market sounding of this, uh, th- this type, um, we ended up getting many, many more megawatts um, because the prices of renewables are coming down so dramatically and, um, y- you know, the, the deal that you can get is just so good. So we, we would, would expect to see more than 600 megawatts of renewable energy built. Um, you know, these projects do take time. So, you know, you'd, you'd be thinking, you know, uh, at least two years before we've got the capacity built. Um, but the good news is that this project or this plan for 600 megawatts at least would create about 600 to 700 construction and manufacturing jobs, around 100 ongoing jobs in operations and maintenance, and it will cut pollution or greenhouse gas emissions by between 1.2 and 1.4 million tonnes a year. So, you know, given the, um, you know, the, the scale and urgency of the climate crisis that we saw with the bushfires earlier this year, it is good to see the government doing a heavy lift to cut our emissions. It's good too because it's actually not going to really cost the government anything, is it? Because 
that they're actually they're, they're most likely going to end up getting cheaper cheap electricity for the system yeah that's what exactly, they pay now yeah that's exactly right and um we did do a little bit of internal analysis that we never released publicly but um my colleague pat simons would be able to tell you the specific figure but shifting to renewables would have saved the the victorian government and victorian taxpayer you know tens of millions of dollars um so you know it is a good it's a good deal for our climate and it's a good deal for our community Someone should run those figures past the federal ministers and the, and the prime minister and explain to them <laughs> that maybe coal and gas aren't the only things that create jobs and uh, and do wonders for the economy. Yeah, time and time again, analysis comes out. Um, the most recently, uh, the most recent analysis I saw from the Australia Institute showed that you know when it comes to the jobs that emerge from gas, um, it's right down the bottom of the list. Um, you know that if if you're in the business of creating jobs, there are there are um, you know more important priorities for governments than building bloody gas pipelines and <laughs> and drilling for gas. And it's going to do nothing to help our our climate uh, crisis as well. No, the the federal government's um, really obsessed by gas at the moment. Uh, they've got an advisory committee that's mostly full of people who work in work in the gas industry. And so they believe that gas is the future, not renewables, which which is in fact crazy, as it, as already the economics are moving in the direction of favouring renewables, and and yet as Lee says, they want to build huge gas pipelines across across the country. When what we need actually is some huge power lines across the country to link up to link up all the wind farms and um, and solar farms. Yeah, and look. You know, the, the headline news of the Australian Financial Review today is that the European Union, you know, they're going to be imposing a carbon border tax on high-emitting countries from 2023. So, you know, unless there is a, a dramatic course correction from the Morrison government, you know, our economy could be put at great disadvantage um, in terms of exporting to those big players around the world. Oh, that's great. Great news to hear about that. <laughs> It yeah, might force Angus Taylor to change his um, um, angle of attack. Yeah, I've got it in front of me, but that, of course, was Monday's financial review because we <laughs> our recording schedule just to and people are rushing out to get the Wednesday one. Um, yeah, <laughs> John, you had a um, an item, and I know Friends of the Earth have been active on the north, the northeast, northwest link, whatever that one's called. Northeast, northeast, which yeah. is going to yeah. cause absolute havoc all over the place but I know I don't know Lee how much you know but I know Friends of the Earth have been quite active on a campaign around that issue but John you you uh, have some information on that. Sure, yeah. yeah there's a really interesting commentary from William McDougall who was involved in in um, the planning of state government projects oh, a few years ago now uh, but he's, he was involved with North East Link and he was also involved with the Melbourne Metro Tunnel but uh, he's a uh, dare I say, it, a bit of an outsider. He was originally from the UK and he um, found over time that he didn't like the, um, the way these projects were being planned and um, decisions were being made. The decisions were almost always that the projects had to be huge. Uh, and, and in his view, the um, things like the benefit-cost ratio, which is the way you analyse whether the project makes sense in, in financial terms, uh, he, he 
argues that these sort of projects in Melbourne at least have um, have inflated benefit cost ratios about double what they what they are in reality and in both cases the northeast link and the melbourne metro tunnel the real benefit cost ratio is less than one which means the the uh, benefits of the projects do not exceed the costs of the projects in his view and he's 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 knowledgeable i'll read you a paragraph from his overview it's he has a blog if you if you google google william mcdougall blog you'll be able to find it it's it's a really it's a very interesting blog and he's written some very interesting articles but anyhow this is talking about the northeast link regardless of whether it it'll produce sustainable transport outcomes it won't the sheer scale of the northeast link and the haste with which it's been assessed and designed plus the unknown aftermath of COVID-19 on all the assumptions behind it mean that it must be re-evaluated properly and re-scoped accordingly before a contract is, got, is signed. It is irresponsible in the extreme to do otherwise. So I think that's, that's a fairly damning conclusion from somebody who was inside the, the system that, that produced the so-called reports that claim these projects were worthwhile building mm. yes you know the 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 northeast link for instance we we're, we're not going to know how much it costs we're not going to know how much the government has paid it's it's extraordinary the whole thing it's it's going to have tolls on it but the tolls are going to be decided by the government and we won't know whether those tolls even pay for the cost of building it um, because it's all going to be kept secret. So it's, it's, and it's an outrageous scale, this project. That, that, um, it's up to 20 lanes wide. I mean, it, it's extraordinarily extraordinary. And it seems to me that um, it may be the Andrews government's um, worst, worst um, excess, I would say. And Lee, of course, we've just talked about the government doing good things for the environment on public transport, but here it seems to be going in the other direction and creating all sorts of pollution, uh, both environmentally um, in, in terms of, of, of air pollution generally, but also the damage it's going to cause to the environment as it as it uh, where it's built, because it's going across some pretty, again, some pretty um, pretty um, sensitive land. Um, around Heidelberg, etc. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think our role at Friends of the Earth is to be a bit of an honest broker and call it as we see it. So, you know, obviously when the government is coming out with positive announcements around renewables, you know, we do give them a pat on the back and encourage them to go further. But when they do make the wrong decision around um, our transport future, we do have to hold them account to that. So um, our Sustainable Cities campaign are working very closely with communities uh, impacted by the North East Link and will continue to resist that project. And uh, what we would prefer to see the government do is actually invest in a feasibility study for the um, Melbourne Metro 2 tunnel. So, you know, we've seen uh, only, only a week and a half ago the tunnelling for Melbourne Metro 1 is half complete. You know, it is time for the government to start thinking about the follow-up project. And Melbourne Metro 2 can connect communities in the west of Melbourne 
with the northeast and you know can open up a lot more capacity and and increase frequency so dan andrews it's time to invest in melbourne metro too just just to add to that just to add to that the the melbourne metro too would have benefits for the west of the city and benefits for the east of you know the northeast of the city uh while going underneath the cbg the assumptions under underlying the westgate tunnel are that that commuters are going to continue to pour into the center of the city by car and that's why we need all this extra capacity you know coming in from the west and in the same way the northeast link in one way pretends to be an orbital orbital road but but in reality, is going to be a a, a part of a part of a, of a of a commuter link towards the city. So surely these things should these sort of uh, trips to the CBD should be um, organised by public transport, not not by car. And the north and the, both of these projects are of a scale which they are actually going to generate more commuter traffic by car. That you know that is going to be the outcome, and that of course is the outcome that the tollway operators want because they want more people to pay tolls. So, particularly for trips to the CBD, it seems crazy to be building projects which are just going to encourage car traffic to the CBD. Yeah, well, just Graham Curry, who's sort of a transport expert at uh, Monash. He came out a couple of weeks ago and said that all the research shows we're very likely to get public transport ridership back after this pandemic. City growth will happen again and Metro 2 is essential, he says. Uh, I don't. I hope it doesn't happen. What he says also is Melbourne is tipped to be as big as London in 20 years, but we only have a rail network about 20% of its size. Well, I hope we're not as big as London in 20 years, but um, nonetheless, he's come out very strongly in favour of it. So can you just explain to people who mightn't be aware just where Metro 2 will run from to? Okay, well, as I understand it, the idea is that it would start from Newport over in the west where it would link to the um, Werribee rail line and then it would dive under the river and then it would service the new, the new development that's promised for Fisherman's Bend. And then it would go under the city where you'd interchange, be able to interchange with other railway lines, you know, other suburban lines, and then come out through Fitzroy on the north northeast of the city, uh, go to um, Clifton Hill, and then from there it could provide um, link, linkages to a new line to Doncaster and beyond, and also linkages linked to the um, Mernda line and also to the um, Hurstbridge line. So the idea, the idea that it would be able to take trains right across under the city and out the other side, which is the efficient way to run trains. You don't really want them running around loops in the city. That would be the way to service um, commuter traffic to the city, particularly, rather than, rather than happily putting them in their cars. And it doesn't matter whether they're electric cars, because even electric cars still create a lot of congestion and pollution of some sorts. So, you know, you really do want people on public transport coming to the city. Yeah. 
Lee, I know it's discussed quite regularly on, on, let's give it a plug, Dirt Radio, the faux program, which is 9.30 on Tuesday mornings on this station. But um, uh, you talk about the fact that it needs to be stopped, but is it now stoppable, the North East Link, or is it, is it too far down the track in government signing contracts, etc.? You know, I'm, the community resistance is quite strong to the project. So, you know, there's, there's, always, uh, there's always a chance. You need to maintain hope in these big fights. And, you know, people did think that the, the battle against North East Link was, was unwinnable and uh, the community proved them wrong. Um, but I think what we really do need to look out for is what the government is going to do in its forthcoming budget and what the state government will be doing in its uh, economic stimulus package uh, in response to the pandemic. So I think those will be key moments to, to once again determine just how serious the government is about pursuing the North East Link. And um, once again, we're urging them and calling on them to, you know, invest, you know, public funds into the sustainable public transport infrastructure that we need. Uh, we're a growing city. And as you said, you know, if we're going to have a population the size of London, we need to have a rail network that matches it. Lee, is there any indication that other um, areas, other industries, whether government or non-government, are going to um, follow pretty soon in this uh, direction? Uh, look, I, I think the support for expanding public transport, it's a, it's a growing campaign. Um, so, you know, we're working very closely with the Public Transport Users Association, uh, we're also working with the rail, tram and bus union and we're starting to bring in some new allies into the debate. So we've got the Disability Resources Centre who are joining the campaign for, um, you know, more accessible public transport but also more frequent transport that helps us tackle climate and the other issues that you see with the growing population. So, yeah, I think the coalition... Uh, of, uh, of groups that are fighting for improved public transport that's growing. And, um, yeah, we welcome, we welcome businesses and, and others to get involved. Right. John, comment at this point? Well, the Northeast Link, you know, it's got trouble. It's got the sort of momentum of Andrews behind it. And he seems to have made his brand, these big, big projects. And he, um, <clears throat> he's certainly got his prestige behind it. The scale of the thing is 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 in my mind absolutely ridiculous. It might there might be some justification in in finishing off the ring road around the city, but it, this isn't just finishing off the ring road. This is just building something that's just so, on such an outrageous scale. The government wasn't able to find a consortium that was prepared to build the thing. The government is actually building this thing, and the government will be doing the the tiling and, and um, everything about this project. It's not a project that, that like, like Transurban with the other toll roads. It's more like the Peninsula Link. And on the Peninsula Link, the government is in control of the whole thing, including tiling levels. So this, this one, the government won't have any deniability on. It'll be very much the government's project. And if it goes wrong, it'll be very much their problem. And you know, after after we know what goes wrong with these big projects, lots of things can go wrong, and the scale of this thing is just so ridiculous in my mind that it's 
it really needs to be, if any, at least scaled back, and and it needs to be reconsidered. It's not, it's not really being built now as a um, finishing off the ring road. It's being built as a way to suck more traffic onto the eastern freeway to fire it at the city. That's really what that's really what its use is. Yeah, it's just a feeder road, really. It. Uh it, and mm. of course, it's 21 lanes when it hits the Eastern Freeway now. And, and That's right. Lee, it, it also wipes out the last possible re, um, area where you could put event, the, the long-promised Doncaster rail line. As we pointed out, that freeway was originally supposed to be the rail line anyway. But uh, it means there'll never be a, a rail line in that area if this goes ahead. Yeah, you know, you're probably right. And, you know, when, it, when you're looking at Victoria's uh, greenhouse gas performance, uh, you know, the transport sector is the second largest and fastest growing source of emissions in the state. And, um, you know, while there is a lot of uh, hope around what electric vehicles can do, uh, the original electric vehicle is the train and the tram. And that's where Friends of the Earth are allocating our resources to try and get more you know, public transport up and running. And, um, yeah, I think there is this interesting argument around, you know, is, is, this, uh, is this investment, um, is it contrary to the state government's uh, climate change commitments? And they are legislated commitments. So it would be good to see more people connecting the dots and putting that to the government. Yeah, it's, it certainly would. We haven't seen, we, because we're doing this on Monday morning, um, by Wednesday morning, the budget will have been announced, the federal budget, but there's speculation that there's going to be a number of public transport. There's also a lot of road initiatives, unfortunately, but the government's throwing money around in its so-called job creation. Um, one of them, John, is Western Rail Plan. Um, they're suggesting there'll be 30 million toward that. Do you know what that's about? I think I, I heard something brief on radio this morning that they, there's, there's money to improve the Warrnambool rail line some more so they can run more frequent services on that line, passenger services, but freight as well. Well, well, that seems to be separate because there's also the stage two of the Warrnambool rail line, they've allowed $208 oh, million, okay. um, and this seems to be separate to that. And I'm just wondering which, what it is. Sorry, I'd be completely speculating, Kevin. If yeah, I, yeah. Um, I knew what it is. It, it might be. They are talking about further upgrades around getting you know, Geelong, Geelong to Melbourne and, and Warrnambool to Geelong. So m maybe it's part of yeah, well, that general well, Western Geelong, plan. Well, it would have to be money for planning because that's only enough money to plan it, not to build it. Yeah, that's right. That's what it says, plan. <laughs> It'd be billions of dollars if they're actually going to start you know, raising the speeds on the Geelong line to 100, 160 kilometres an hour or 200 kilometres an hour. Yeah. Probably a worthwhile project. But that could also um, get some benefit from um, the um, rail tunnel number two, Melbourne Metro 2, coming in, coming into the city from, uh, from Newport. Yeah. Because that would be the obvious way to bring a fast train from Geelong straight, straight into the city. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, it's probably planning money, you're right. Yeah. Well, yes. They also um, talk about a business case for improving connectivity to the Port of Melbourne. That's, and again, just doing a bloody plan for it. But we would hope that would, that would involve rail rather than more road connectivity. Uh, yeah, they, they actually finally are in the process of improving rail connectivity 
by having depots in places like Dandenong and uh, north of the city and west of the city where shuttle trains will run to the port carrying containers which will go up, go up trucks onto trains at these outer, outer um, land-based ports. That seems to be finally happening after about 10 years of dithering. Um, and so he's hoping that they're just going to in, in, enlarge that plan some more because obviously um, our, our, the rate of, rate of using trains to get cargo to and from the port in Melbourne is, is pathetic compared with what happens in, at Botany in Sydney. They're far ahead of us in that regard. Somehow or other, there's got to be some uh, improvements made in Melbourne, big improvements. Yep. Because as Lee says, you can do things electric with trains much easier than you can do things electric on, on roads. Which was Lee's point, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, we're coming to the uh, near the end of the show, unfortunately. So um, just a few minutes left on City Limits. And we've got John McPherson with us. And also we're joined by Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth. Um, Lee, can you tell us what the uh, Friends of the Earth campaigns are focusing on at the moment and uh, how people might be able to get involved if they're interested to learn more? Sure can. Um, so, yeah, Friends of the Earth, we're campaigning on the, on the climate front, a uh, bit of a multi, multi-pronged approach, actually. So we've got our Sustainable Cities campaign who are supporting communities resisting the North East Link and making the case for the Melbourne Metro 2 tunnel to occur. We have our Yes to Renewables campaign, uh, you know, making the argument for greater investment in solar and wind and storage. And with Act on Climate, the campaign that I'm coordinating, we're actually uh, calling for the government to set science-based emissions reduction targets. And, you know, that if we can get that in place, it would actually encourage greater investment in public transport and sustainable transport. And lastly, the state government is required to prepare a climate change strategy for the state uh, by the end of the year. We know the government has a lot on their plate with the pandemic, so we thought we would actually write a people's climate strategy and take that one off their plate. So... If people would like to participate in our people's climate strategy, we do have an online survey and I'll just read out the link so that you can participate. So that is surveymonkey.com forward slash R forward slash climate solutions survey. Great. We can also put that on the podcast for anyone who's accessing City Limits through their podcast app. We'll have that link in the uh, information, in the text, um, in the blurb, and on the website 3cr.org.au. You can find that there. Great. Thank you. Well, that's a great initiative, actually, and um, it's kind of you to take it off the government and do it for them. That's just (laughs) wonderful. Congratulations. Uh, we're out of time, but uh, just one thing we didn't discuss, and it's not good news, John, is that the the ongoing battle between Transurban and John Holland about uh, the the so-called toxic um, soil in the yep. um, in the tunnel. Um, sadly, the government seems to have they've been they've been trying to force the government to pick up the cost, of course. But sadly, the government has now agreed to pick up some of the cost of disposal, which I think it should never have to do because they knew it was contaminated before they they signed the contract. Well, that's right. The whole the whole idea was the contract would um, would protect the government from extra costs, and of course, in the end, 
the government pays if things go wrong. Yeah, we might discuss that a bit more next month because I think we're out of time for today. But sure. um, Lee, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. John, thank you again for your monthly contribution. And Meg, do thank Karina for doing a wonderful job keeping us on air. Karina, you're a superstar. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karina. Okay, next week we're looking at energy issues. Oh, next week we're also having a bit of a special interview because the following day, Thursday next week, is the 50th anniversary of the of the Westgate Bridge disaster. And 3CR on that Thursday is having special programming, but we're going to preempt it with an interview with one of the people who was on the site that day on next week's program. So we look forward to that. Cool. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.